and uh, for the past few weeks we have um, actually it's been how many weeks now it's been uh, 12 weeks this is the 12th week we are left with only one sermon from this series of sermons that we have been doing first John and we're looking at the um, topic um, the theme in the book of am I really a, a Christian and it's, a, it's an important question to ask ourselves and to interrogate ourselves with. So First John, um, today we're looking at chapter 5, and we will read from verse 5 up until verse 12. First John, chapter 5, verse 5, up until verse 12. This is um, the Word of God, and what, what we will be looking at as, as a topic today is, Who will you believe? Who will you believe? Let us come to the Lord in prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, our Lord and God, we thank you for this um, day. We thank you, Father, that you are sovereign and you are seated on your throne in power and majesty. We pray that as we draw near to you to hear your word, that our hearts will be opened, our minds will truly understand your truth, O God, that our will will be conformed to your will. Help us to know you and honor you. Help us, O oh God, to truly treasure you as you ought to be treasured. In the wonderful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. The, the most important question I believe that any person can be faced with is the question, who is Jesus? And whose testimony will you believe on who Jesus is? Uh, this is important because many faulty answers are given and unfortunately many people, even professing Christians, are accepting these faulty answers without scrutiny. One of the prevalent answers given to the question about the identity of Jesus is that Jesus is just a moral teacher but he is not divine. In other words, he is not God. He is just a moral teacher, but he is not God. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, addresses this statement by showing how ridiculous it is and why it is important to believe the testimony of the Bible about who Jesus Christ is. Let me read um, just an excerpt from his book. Um, just listen carefully what he says. He says, I'm trying to prevent anyone saying re the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's what people say. He says, that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great moral teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. 
In other words, it's either we accept Jesus Christ as God or we dismiss him as a liar or lunatic. We have no other way. We cannot choose aspects of Jesus we like and remove other aspects that we don't like. We must accept the whole Christ or nothing at all. So the question of the identity of Jesus Christ is very, very important. The, the, the Bible teaches that this question will ultimately determine all of our eternal destinies. This isn't the new question. Remember when Jesus in Caesarea Philippi, after asking what was the shared opinion in Caesarea Philippi about him, he turns to the disciples and asks them a question, who do you say that I am? It is not a, a new question. It is a question that we must reckon with. It is a question that we must be confronted with. Was Jesus just a historical person? Was he simply an influential leader and teacher? Was Jesus of Nazareth merely human? Or was Jesus the Son of God and born of the Virgin Mary? Is Jesus both human and divine? Did he live a sinless and perfect life? Did he die on the cross for the sins of the world? Was he buried and three days later resurrected? Did he appear to Peter, to the disciples, and then uh, to more than 500 people? Is he now sitting at the right hand of God, uh, of God the Father, advocating for us as believers? Is Jesus of Nazareth who he says he is? Is he the biblical account? Is the biblical account of Jesus Christ true? Who do you say that Jesus Christ is? In this book that we just read, John is writing to early Christians who are struggling because some of their church friends have left the congregation. The, the, the original audience that he's writing to was struggling with doubt, especially doubting their salvation questioning their salvation they believed but they, they've watched some former church members leave the fellowship those that have left the church are adding insult to injury because they are trying to convince the faithful remnant that, that, that they are mistaken as to who jesus is those remaining in the church are probably shaken and concerned and asking the question, asking themselves the question, am I really a Christian? John writes these early Christians to a letter and lovingly provides them three simple tests to determine if they are genuine Christians. Remember those tests, the theological test, the moral test, and the social test? They are helpful in, in terms of um, determining whether we are true Christians. So these three tests are intended to assure the early believers of their salvation. Jo John brings them up repeatedly throughout the letter. Remember last week I explained that this letter was like a spiral staircase that you continue to come back to, the, to, to some of the same scenery as you use the stairs. And we've seen these three tests in previous weeks, and we'll see them again as we finish this letter. In our passage this morning, John is going to further describe the truth about Jesus that we are to believe. 
He provides testimonies for this truth. And finally, he describes the impact of receiving this truth upon us. So in this text, we see three movements, right? The first movement is we see true belief. Secondly, we see true testimonies. And thirdly, the evidence of true reception. The evidence of true reception. Let us look at God's word. We're going to read um, from chapter chapter 5, actually. Chapter 4 and up until chapter 5. No, that's, um, we'll read from chapter 5, verse 5. This is God's word, let us hear him. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. This is the word of God. Now let us look at first, as I said, there are three movements in this uh, passage that we see. We see, first of all, true belief. True belief. In, in verse 5, we find John asking a rhetorical question here. He says, who is it that, uh, that, that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Of course, the answer to the question is, there is no one who has overcome the world. John is picking up a theme here that he's developed throughout the book. That theme is emphasizing that Jesus is the Son of God and that to overcome the world, one must believe the truth. So belief begins by recognizing who Jesus is first. You recognize that Jesus is the Son of God. He is God himself. But John has more to say about true belief here. In verse 6, John writes, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by the water and the blood. May I just tell you that this verse, specifically the wording water and blood, has cost me hours of study. Uh, What does John mean by water and the blood? Well, that's a million rand question, isn't it? To get to the meaning of the water and the blood, we first look at the way John structures the sentence here. But by looking at the phrasing of this verse, we can determine that Jesus' coming by the water wasn't under dispute. In other words, they were not disagreeing about it. 
Look at how John writes it. He says, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. From this reading, we understand that his audience had no problem with the water. It was the blood that bothered them. So we're ready to pursue the meaning of the water and the blood. If you're a careful Bible reader, you'll, you'll know that the most important principle in reading the Bible is, is that Scripture interprets Scripture, right? In other words, you interpret passages that are unclear by passages that are clear. It is especially helpful when the author of uh, on the author of that book that you are reading has authored other books in the New Testament or in the Old Testament. Um, uh, and and, and, and if, if that is the case, what you can do is that you can look at the way he has used the phrase in other books that he has written. And you will understand it more. And with John, we are fortunate because he has written five books in the New Testament. He has written the Gospel of John. He has written the three letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And he has written Revelation. Now, the Gospel of John is the most helpful in getting us to understand the meaning of water and blood. Throughout the hours spent on the phrase, the water and the blood, I came to find that the word blood is uniformly understood to reference Jesus' death on the cross. It is actually the term water that current biblical scholars struggle to interpret. I'll offer two options uh, for, for what the word water could mean. By the way, I'm especially uh, indebted here to a commentary by Cruz, um, for clear explanations of these options. First of all, the first option here is it would consider um, it would be to consider how John uses the term water in the third chapter of the Gospel of John. In that chapter, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. Remember the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, and he uses the words water and spirit in the same line. Listen to John chapter 3, verse 5. This is what it says. It says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. In this verse, Jesus appears to be using the word water to indicate natural birth, while using the phrase born of the Spirit to indicate supernatural birth. So if you, you, you determined that this was the correct interpretation for, for water in First John, you would conclude that John is attempting to say that Jesus was born naturally. The implication then is, is that John's using the word water to convey the idea that Jesus was born of flesh and that he was fully human. But there's a second option. And it is what I think makes the most sense here. The second option is that John is using water to reference the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist. Remember that the John who writes here is not John the Baptist, right? Don't confuse the two. Right? John who writes the gospel according to John is not John the Baptist, but John the Apostle. Right, so I get people get a little bit confused when it comes to that. 
and I think single ladies, if 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 a guy uh, confuses the two, you know who not to marry, right? <laughs> in, in, in John chapter one, verse twenty-six to thirty-three, we, we we read that Jesus being baptized and 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 Jesus's ministry beginning, right? And I think the original audience would grant that John the Baptist baptized Jesus, and it was following this baptism that the ministry of Jesus began. Uh, The blood here then would be understood as the end of Jesus' ministry on, on, on earth, right? Since it was there that he died upon the cross. But it was the blood here, Jesus fully God and fully man, actively laying down his life on the cross as the atoning sacrifice that would have created a massive controversy in the original audience in the church. John wanted to emphasize then that true Christians believed that Jesus was baptized and died on the cross, which atoned for the Christian sin. The, the blood from First John chapter one verse seven cleanses us from all sin. Jesus in John in First John chapter two verse two is the propitiation for our sins. In other words, he bears the full wrath of God on our behalf and makes atonement for us. And I think that John wanted the readers to recognize that salvation was only available by Jesus' death on the cross. That there was no other way of being saved except for the fact that Jesus Christ died for sinners on the cross. And of course, the blood is as controversial now as it was then. You walk out on the street and ask people if Jesus was a real person. And nobody gets bent out of shape by by that, right? You, You can even ask people if Jesus was baptized. And if he came by water, people probably won't, won't flinch. But as soon as you begin talking about Jesus' blood and begin asking people to acknowledge that only Jesus' blood can cleanse us from all sin, you'll have a controversy. right? Remember when we did the two sermons on discernment. A call to discernment, we spoke about a couple of people who uh, uh, disagree and dispute with the claim that Jesus died for sin, that Jesus came to die for sin. They, they, they don't disbelieve the fact that Jesus existed, right? But they assign roles to Jesus that he did not assign himself. They assign political roles. Jesus comes as a politician, to free people from political oppression and economic op- oppression. Jesus comes as a guru to, to, to give people enlightenment. But he never comes as the son of God to die for sin on the cross. They dispute that. Some of you might even agree with those I'm referencing. Maybe you are asking, Pastor, why all the emphasis on Jesus' blood and the cross? Maybe some of you wonder why we have to make such a big deal of blood and sin and atonement. Well, look at what John, look at how John starts our section in verse 5, right? He says, you have overcome the world. You, you won't overcome the world unless you believe Jesus is the Son of God. 
There's no way you can have victory over the world unless you believe that Jesus is truly God. He is the Son of God. And John goes to great lengths to teach that what Jesus accomplished on the cross is critical and necessary for our salvation. We cannot do without it. We cannot chuck it aside and continue on. You can't just believe Jesus existed. You have to understand what Jesus did and who he is. Let me ask you, will you overcome the world? You see, those who are Christians pass this theological test and can have confidence that they will overcome the world. If you're one of those that are struggling with doubt and you're looking for confidence, you can find it in the truth of this passage. God's word teaches you that Jesus Christ is the son of God and he came by blood and water. Now for those of you who have rejected that Jesus is the son of God altogether, I want to ask you a question. What would it take for you to consider to reconsider. Would you reconsider that Jesus is the Son of God if I could provide you with enough evidence? If, if evidence was stacked before you, would you believe? If you would give me just a chance, I'd like to have you look at the second half of verse 6 um, through verse 9 as I see some evidence for you to consider here. We see secondly, the, the second movement here. We saw true belief, right? The second movement in this um, section that we just read is true testimonies, true testimonies. We read here that the Spirit is the one who testifies about Jesus Christ because the Spirit is truth. See, one of the main responsibilities of the Holy Spirit is to bear witness about Jesus Christ. When you look at John chapter 15, verse 26, this same spirit that came upon Jesus at his baptism is also responsible for convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The true Holy Spirit testifies to believers to recognize Jesus Christ. It is the Holy Spirit that convicts us of our sin in order that we might confess our sin. Right? By confessing our sin, we are promised that God will forgive us our sin because of Jesus' death on the cross for our sin. A lot of times today when you hear uh, people speak about the Holy Spirit, they, they speak about things that are far from the scriptures, that are not even related to any of the Bible. Right? It is the Holy Spirit, it is the Spirit who slays you in the Spirit. Right? When you want to see the presence of the Holy Spirit, you see people falling backward and that is the presence of the Holy Spirit. Or you see people barking like dogs in the church or people rolling all over the floor. That is not anywhere in the Bible. It's nowhere to be found in the Bible. In fact, when people fell before God, they never fell backward. <laughs> In the Old Testament, they never fell backward. They fell prostrate before God. There's no slaying in the spirit. 
the, the Holy Spirit, the purpose of the Holy Spirit is to come and testify about Jesus Christ, is to change and regenerate us, is to point us to the truth of who Jesus is, is to make us recognize Jesus, is to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. It is not to slay you in the Spirit. It is to make you more and more like Christ. It is to make you understand the word of God. Though the Holy Spirit testifies of this truth, John continues by explaining that we have further evidence, we have further confidence, because the water, the blood, and the Spirit all agree. They aren't three separate witnesses that provide conflicting testimonies. Rather, these, tes- these witnesses are uniform, right? They are all in alignment and testify of Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, two or three witnesses were necessary for a valid accusation. And, and, and Paul continues that principle in the New Testament as well. Here in the same way, John established that not only does the water testify and Jesus' baptism with the Holy Spirit descending upon him is quite a testimony, isn't it? And not only does the blood testify and Jesus' death on the cross is quite a testimony, especially since God raised him three days later. And not only does the Spirit testify and the Spirit is quite a sufficient witness, isn't it? But all three agree. All speak with one voice. That they speak in unison. There's harmony between the three witnesses. And therefore, based on the need for two or three witnesses, this is credible evidence. Now then, you might be thinking, it's not really enough evidence for me. I want more. I still want more. Well, okay. Look at verse 9. If we receive the testimony of man, the testimony of God is what? Greater. The testimony of God is greater. John's arguing from the lesser to the greater here. Well, what he's saying is if you believe a person, how much more should you believe God? Right? We, we tend to take people at their word. When someone says something, We tend to take them at their word. See, God is agreeing with this testimony. God is validating this testimony. God's testimony is greater than man's. And though all three agree, we should believe his testimony even more. Let me ask you, do you believe this testimony? You see, if you're, if you're one of the committed Christians, I'm guessing that this evidence only further solidifies your belief. Right? The Holy Spirit has assisted you in recognizing Jesus, recognizing your sin, granting you grace to confess your sin, and trusting that Christ has paid um, your sin by his saving death on the cross. Continue to believe this testimony and be assured that you're a Christian. Now, if you are one of those who are struggling with doubt and looking for confidence, I would hope that you would 
take confidence as you recognize the Holy Spirit working. He wants you to identify Jesus, be convicted of your sin, repent of your sin, and believe in Jesus' death on the cross. I pray that you will believe this testimony about Jesus Christ and have confidence. Now, for those of you who actively reject or disbelieve this message, I've tried to explain the true testimonies and witnesses of who Jesus is. John gives clear and compelling witness with water, with the water, the blood, and the spirit. But perhaps you're thinking, but I want more evidence. And let me share with you some more of some of the evidence that John provides in in verse ten to verse twelve. We see this in the third movement, right? So we saw the first movement, the true belief. Second movement, true testimonies, and lastly, truth reception. Truth reception. If you have true belief, which is point number one, and have and believe the truth and, and believe the testimony, uh, point number two, then John proceeds to explain in verse ten that you will have internal evidence. He says, "Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself." This inner witness of the Holy Spirit is a Christian's awareness of the Holy Spirit as at work inside of them. And sometimes we 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 discern the working of the Holy Spirit in, 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 in various ways, right? They, they might be subjective, but sometimes when you are not reading your Bible, you do feel that I really need to read my Bible. I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. When, you, when you're not attending church, you, you feel the Holy Spirit nudging and convicting you that I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. When you're not, pray and, uh, when you're not praying and committed to prayer, you, you, you feel the Holy Spirit convicting you that you need to be praying. Brothers and sisters, let me say this. This is serious. If you don't feel convicted... Whenever you don't spend time in the Word, you, you just feel comfortable. You continue comfortably in life. If you don't feel convicted when you are not given to prayer, you continue comfortably in life. If you're not convicted when it comes to, to fellowshipping with the saints, then probably, probably, you're not in Christ. You're just a traditional Christian. You know, growing up in a Christian church, this is what we used to do. This was in the schedule. Sunday's church. Whether I'm there or I'm not there, it's the same. This question that John wants us to ask ourselves, am I really a Christian? It's an important question that we need to ask ourselves. Is the Holy Spirit convicting you? Do you have the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit? That when you sin, you, you, you don't feel relaxed in that sin. You, you don't feel comfortable in that sin. You, you feel like hiding yourself from God. You feel like hiding yourself from believers. Because you know that I have sinned against the Holy One of Heaven. Is there conviction in your heart, brothers and sisters? Is there something like conviction in your heart? Look at verse 10. Whoever does not believe 
that God, whoever does not believe God, has made him a liar. Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. This is the hard truth. that, uh, But, but John makes the, the point quite clear here. You're calling God a liar if you don't believe what he, he has said to be true about his son. John doesn't give us any middle ground here. Do you believe the son of God? If so, you have eternal in, in, in a witness of the Holy Spirit. And since you believe the testimony is about Jesus, you have confidence. But if you don't believe, well, then you're calling God a liar. And you can't have any confidence or assurance of salvation. In verse 11, John crystallizes what he means by the testimony. Look at verse 11. He explains the testimony. He says, this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And how do we find eternal life? And this life is in his son. What a gift for those who believe. We have eternal life in Jesus Christ. Notice the the tense of the verb and the sequence that John provides here. He, He doesn't say God gave us eternal life and this life is given us when we die. Rather, uh, John writes that we have eternal life, present tense. And this life is in Jesus Christ. We, we aren't waiting to have this life someday. Rather, we have eternal life now. Eternal life is a quality of life, not just a quantity of life. Right? When we die, we don't just, that's not when we have eternal life. We have eternal life and we are confident that even when we die, death has no sting. Death has no sting. Because we have eternal life now. Eternal life is a quality of life. It is not just a quantity of life. It starts when one puts their faith in Jesus Christ. John concludes with a simple message stated both positively and negatively. Listen to what he says. He says, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. You see, the consequences of belief in Jesus Christ are big. It will cost you everything. Whether you believe in Jesus, whether you don't believe in Jesus, it will cost you everything let me ask you do you have Jesus Christ have you received the truth has the testimony of the Holy Spirit been given to you if so you're a Christian if you believe the testimonies about Jesus Christ you have confidence but if you don't have the Son of God you haven't received the truth And if you don't believe the testimonies concerning the Son of God, you can't have any assurance of being saved. For those of you who are committed committed Christians, do you recognize the internal evidence of the Holy Spirit? Do you recognize that God has given eternal life to you in Jesus Christ? I'm praying that you actively believe the testimonies about Jesus Christ and have confidence. And how about those of you who are struggling with doubt. Has the recognition of the inner witness of the Holy Spirit given you more confidence? 
Does the understanding that eternal life is in Jesus Christ give you assurance? Are you encouraged by realizing that if you have Jesus Christ, you have life? I hope so. And I'm praying that for you. And finally, how about you? Who at the outset of this sermon would have identified yourself as rejecting the Christian faith? Has the living and active word of God cut through your heart? And helped you understand what true belief is and, and, and the true testimonies and the evidence of the truth reception. My hope is that you would at least be willing to reconsider who Jesus says he is. But perhaps you'll, be, you, you'll, you'll, you'll still be stuck on the evidence issue, right? Thinking it's not enough, I need some evidence. I need some absolute evidence. I started this, this sermon by asking the crucial question, who do you say that Jesus is? That question will likely be answered based on whose testimony you will believe. Look, friends, I don't have a photograph of Jesus being baptized by John. There were no cameras at that time. I don't have DNA evidence that his blood was shed on the Roman cross. I'm not trying to be sarcastic. Rather, I want you to see that none of us in this room were there. And therefore, we all have to trust someone's testimony. The question for you then is whose testimony will you trust? Whose testimony will you trust? Who will you believe? Will you believe Oprah? who says Jesus was not really divine, but came to show us that divinity is within us? Will you believe Joshua Maponga, who says that Jesus did not die for the black men, but, but Jesus um, is, the, is the tool of oppression used by the Europeans and, and the Chinese? Will you believe that? Will you believe what the imagined church is saying, that uh, it doesn't matter whether you're a Hindu, you're, you're, you're a Buddhist, or whatever. Uh, we all are on the same path. Will you believe their testimonies, or will you believe the testimony of the Word of God? Will the Word of God have the last say for you? Is the Word of God sufficient? Is the Word of God authoritative? Is it clear? Is it necessary? Will you believe it? Will you believe what it says about Jesus Christ? Who will have the last word about who Jesus Christ is? The world or the word? Let us pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, our Lord and God, we thank you. Thank you for this time that we got to spend in your word. Your word is clear, O Lord.